nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang, uh, coming up subversely with, uh, Dan Zhang. Um, today we're going to be, uh, looking at the, um, Bush Commission, uh, uh, there was a people's, uh, kind of grassroots commission looking at, uh, war crimes of the Bush, uh, communication, uh, com- Bush administration. Um, today is the day, of course, that General, uh, Petraeus, David Petraeus, is, uh, about to, uh, testify in Congress. Uh, the so-called Petraeus report that isn't really a report. Um, and um, simultaneously uh, today in the New York Times, the MoveOn.org organization, which is a political group that is against the war, has a uh, full-page ad in the New York Times uh, headline, General Petraeus or General Betrayus, uh, Cooking the Books for the White House. Uh, General Petraeus is a military man constantly at war with the facts. In 2004, just before the election, this is according to Move On, he said there was tangible progress in Iraq and that Iraqi leaders are stepping forward. And last week, Petraeus, the architect of the escalation of troops in Iraq, said we have, we say we have achieved progress and we are obviously going to do everything we can to build on that progress. Um, according to Move On, Every independent report on the ground situation in Iraq shows that the surge strategy has failed, yet the general claims a reduction in violence. That's because, according to the New York Times, the Pentagon has adopted a bizarre formula for keeping tabs on violence. For instance, deaths by car bombs do not count. The Washington Post reported that assassinations only count if you are shot in the back of the head, not the front. According to the Associated Press, there have been more civilian deaths and more American soldier deaths in the last, in the past three months than in any other summer we've been there. We'll hear of neighborhoods where violence has decreased, but we won't hear that those neighborhoods have been ethnically cleansed. More importantly, General Petraeus will not admit what everyone knows. Iraq is mired in an unwinnable religious civil war. We may hear of a plan to withdraw a few thousand troops, but we won't hear what Americans are desperate to hear, a timetable for withdrawing all our troops. General Petraeus um, has actually said that American troops will need to stay in Iraq as long as 10 years. Today, before Congress and before the American people, General Petraeus is likely to become General Betrayus. So that's the notice from MoveOn.org in the New York Times uh, this Monday. Uh, we're going to be playing a um, some witnesses uh, before this Bush Commission hearing that was held in New York. And first we're going to hear from uh, one of the top uh, people in uh, Abu Ghraib prison who was actually the commander uh, of um, Abu Ghraib. And um, Brigadier General Janice Kapinski was the former commander of Abu Ghraib prison. And she is being questioned by Marjorie Cohn of the National Lawyers Guild. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. We'll be coming, uh, bringing you testimony from General Kapinski. Um, the, our next um, prosecuting uh, attorney who's going to be... Um, inquiring of uh, 
Janice Karpinski is um, a quite well-known law professor, Marjorie Cohn, who teaches at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego. She is the president-elect of the National Lawyers Guild and the U.S. representative to the executive committee of the American Association of Jurists. Professor Cohn writes a weekly column for truthout.org, which we all follow faithfully, um, and she has written extensively about torture and other misadventures by the Bush administration. She conducted a comprehensive and unprecedented interview with Ms. Karpinski, um, which was published by Truthout, and um, we're hoping to hear some of that information today. Um, Marjorie Cohn, thank you. Thank you, Barbara. We are very privileged today to have another incredibly courageous soul who is, has been speaking truth to power. Janice Karpinski spent 28 years in the U.S. military. She was promoted to Brigadier General in March of 2003 and sent to Iraq to take command of the 800th Military Police Brigade. Janice Karpinski was the first woman ever to command troops in, in a U.S. military combat zone. She was assigned a new mission of assisting with the restoration of Iraqi prisoners, prisons and assisting with the training of new Iraqi guards. One of those 17 prison facilities was Abu Ghraib Prison. She handled over 40,000 prisoners in detention facilities located throughout Iraq. Janice Karpinski is the highest person to have been reprimanded for the Abu Ghraib torture scandal. She is the face of the scapegoat. Janice Karpinski retired in July of 2005. Her book, One Woman's Army, was published in October 2005, and I highly recommend it. I am going now, I'm going now to question Janice Karpinski, and I give you um, an, an unprecedented opportunity here to hear from the, someone who is in the belly of the beast exactly what did happen and what evidently is still happening. Thank you. What was your rank when you got to Iraq? I arrived in Iraq. I took command of the uh, 800th Military Police Brigade and uh, moved up to Baghdad in Iraq in July of 2003, and I was a brigadier general. And you were in charge of the Abu Ghraib prison in the fall of 2003? We were. Uh, it was one of 17 prison facilities under the control of the 800th Military Police Brigade, and our prison facilities were located all over uh, Iraq. We had the largest area of responsibility with the fewest resources. And Abu Ghraib was one located right in Baghdad. Who took charge of the interrogations at Abu Ghraib and the infamous cell blocks 1A and 1B where the torture took place? 
The cell block 1A and 1B were the first two, as they called them, the hard site. They were the first uh, facilities at Abu Ghraib that were restored and reopened, and they were the only maximum security cells in all of Iraq. Uh, so there was a, a long conversation when the military intelligence brigade commander first went to the prison's experts down at Ambassador Bremer's headquarters to ask for permission to run cell block 1A because he needed cells where he could segregate people, people of more intelligence value from the, the general population. And who was that? That was Colonel Thomas Pappas. And uh, he was a regular Army military intelligence officer who I, I asked him one time, how does it work in other places? I mean, it seems like you're stretched pretty thin with your interrogators. And at that time, he only had military intelligence interrogators, all soldiers. And he said, I, I don't know. I've never done this before. I said, you have no experience doing interrogation operations? And he said, none. I was a strategic intelligence officer. So he was, uh, he was living at Abu Ghraib. Um, they were, at that time, there was a very small population of uh, prisoners who were undergoing interrogations, but they needed to segregate them. So he asked first from the prisons department for permission to run cell block 1A and 1B. They, de they denied him that permission, so he came to me, and he asked me to go to the prison's department and ask on his behalf, because he thought that they would be more willing if, if I gave them the argument. And they did approve it. They, they gave him control of cell block 1A in September of 2003, and they told me, you watch, he's going to ask for more. And sure enough, I didn't think he would, but sure enough, a week later, he was asking for control of cell block 1B. And he made that effort... Uh, during the course of Major General Miller's visit to Iraq, uh, when he was sent there to assist the military intelligence uh, personnel in getting more actionable intelligence. Okay. Who was General Jeffrey Miller? What was his rank, and what did he do before he came to Iraq? Well, Major General Jeffrey Miller was the commander of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Uh, he was neither a military intelligence officer or a military police officer. In fact, he was a field artillery officer, a combat arms officer, who was specifically selected by the Secretary of Defense to go to Guantanamo Bay and run the interrogation operation. And he was then subsequently sent to Iraq by Secretary Rumsfeld and Under Secretary Cambone to work with the military intelligence personnel to teach them new and improved interrogation techniques to obtain more actionable intelligence from their interrogation efforts. What did Jeffrey Miller say when he arrived at Abu Ghraib prison? Well, I was invited to, they, normally if somebody's going to come to do an assistance visit, he, they, the team or the individual will do an introductory briefing so everybody understands what they're going to do and what they're going to be looking at. And as I said, he was working almost exclusively with the military intelligence personnel, but they invited me to come over for the introductory briefing. And uh, during that briefing, he was talking about these, he was talking almost in generic terms about using harsher, uh, techniques of interrogation, and he wasn't specific. And uh, one of the uh, in interrogators, a warrant officer in the military intelligence command, uh, raised his hand and asked a question, and he said, you know, sir, we think that we're doing a pretty good job because we're using the techniques that we've used previously. What would you recommend that we do right away if, if you can see some improvements that we can make quickly? 
And he said, look, it's, it's my opinion that you're treating the prisoners too well. At Guantanamo Bay, the prisoners know that we are in charge, and they know that from the very beginning. You have to treat the prisoners like dogs, and if they think or feel any differently, you have effectively lost control of the interrogation. And, and the, the uh, warrant officer was pretty surprised by that. And, and General Miller went on to say that, you know, they, the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay earned everything that they had. And he used the example of their clothing. When they first arrived, um, they were, were treated very aggressively, and the, they were issued an orange jumpsuit. And if they proved themselves to be cooperative and gave information and, and were under control, one of the first things they could earn was a white garment, a two-piece garment. And, and they liked that. It was almost a status symbol for them. So sitting there, knowing that my prisons didn't even have a change of clothing, let alone different colors, I raised my hand and I said, sir, we don't even have funding for one prison uniform, let alone a change of colors. And he waved his hands at me like this and said, don't worry. My budget is $125 million a year, and I will give Colonel Pappas, not give me, I will give Colonel Pappas all the resources he needs to make this work. Now, did Jeffrey Miller say anything about his intent to get Moai's Abu Ghraib? And what did, if so, what did you take that to mean? Well, he said that he wanted to uh, combine all of the interrogation operations at one location. And he wanted Abu Ghraib. And, um, in fact, during that conversation, I told him Abu Ghraib was not mine to give him. That it belonged to Ambassador Bremer. And, and he said he was going to get Moai's the operation. And, and I said to him, it's a, it's a different situation here, sir, thinking, you know, I'm trying to, trying to be logical and, and educate this person. And, you know, we're being mortared here. You're not being mortared down at Guantanamo Bay. Um, we have 300 MPs to guard 6,000 prisoners. You have 800 MPs to guard 680 prisoners. So the numbers are a little bit different. And, and I wasn't getting anywhere with him, but... When he said he wanted to get Moais, I, I immediately imagined that he wanted to transfer this template for operations that he was using at Guantanamo Bay and import it to uh, Iraq, specifically at Abu Ghraib. And did you take that to mean the harsh uh, and abusive interrogation techniques that he used at Guantanamo? I did not, because interrogations were separate and apart from detention operations. But... I, I imagine that he meant there was going to be a requirement for two MPs to escort the prisoners everywhere they went. Um, they were in Guantanamo Bay. Prisoners were moved with leg irons and hand irons and belly chains. And we had none of that equipment in Iraq. And, and the MPs were not, first off, they weren't trained to move prisoners that way. And it wasn't necessary. They were, they were under control. Uh, we didn't have the population that we would eventually have. So... I didn't, I didn't think anything about the application of interrogation uh, procedures. What made you think that Jeffrey Miller was taking orders directly from Donald Rumsfeld? General Miller did several things that, that struck me as unusual, besides the comments that he made. Um, in his conversation with me when he told me that he wanted uh, General Sanchez, who was lieutenant general, three-star general, and, um, and General Fast, who was a one-star but waiting for the confirmation of her promotion to two-stars, uh, both 
looked at General Miller as Secretary Rumsfeld. They, he, they believed and they acted as if he came with his authority. Um, so you have a three-star general who's in charge of the coalition in Iraq, and he is uh, placing himself subordinate to the instructions and the discussions involving General Miller. And General Miller had how many stars? Two. Two stars. And he made a, com a comment one time that uh, when he said he wanted Abu Ghraib, and I told him that it was not mine to give him, but if Ambassador Bremer said give you the prison facility, I would be more than happy to do that. And he said to me, Rick Sanchez said I could have any facility I want, and I want Abu Ghraib. So you have a two-star general speaking to a one-star general and being very familiar with a three-star general. Okay, how were Miller's orders carried out? Well, in, in, the, uh, in the Senate Armed Services uh, testimony, uh, General Miller said at least once that he was not assigned to Iraq, so he had no authority there. He was sent to assist the interrogators with improving their techniques, um, and he was there in an assistance capacity and he advised General Sanchez. However, everything that General Miller told Colonel Pappas, General Fast, and General Sanchez to do, whether they were recommendations or directions, they did those things. And they did as many of them as they could while he was there. And General Sanchez himself signed the eight-page memorandum authorizing literally a laundry list of harsher techniques in interrogations to include the use of dogs and unmuzzled dogs with his specific permission following General Miller's visit. He signed it, in fact, the day after General Miller's visit was concluded. In addition to that, Colonel Pappas, the military intelligence brigade commander, was furnishing a daily report to General Miller uh, detailing the results of interrogations at Abu Ghraib. Now, the, in about mid-October, the International Committee of the Red Cross visited Abu Ghraib. What did they find in cell block 1A? The report that they rendered would normally, any of the reports that the International Committee of the Red Cross would provide, um, would come to me within 48 hours of the completion of their visit. And I was always aware of the ICRC visiting any of my facilities. I didn't feel that I needed to be there because my commanders knew what they were doing and they always called me if there was any problems or the results of their, that visit. And you were in charge of 17 prisons, is that correct. correct? Okay. But this particular report was not provided to me until the first week of December. And when it was provided to me, it was provided by the JAG officer to General Sanchez, Colonel Mark Warren. And, and I didn't know what report he was referring to when he was saying the October report. And when I saw the date on it, I said, where has this been? And he said, well, very quickly, well, it must have been rerouted. Well, I think he intercepted it because they knew what was in that report and they didn't want me to see it. And what the report says, what they, they, they visited cell block 1A, went into it, one of the cells, and there was a naked detainee there. Uh, he had a blanket and they, they didn't really feel comfortable speaking to him. And they asked for him to get some clothing and, and they said, no, he wasn't authorized to have any clothing returned to him. Did they say um, something about drip feeding clothing and what did that mean? Well, what, what I, I, I didn't, I'd never heard the expression before, but the people that were all aware of this report were with Colonel Warren and they were, 
basically surrounded me to get, you know, so I could become aware of this report. And when I question a couple of things, the drip feeding, the women's underwear, the claim of women's underwear. Excuse me, just a minute. What was drip feeding? And then we'll get to it. It means that they take the clothing away. If a prisoner refuses to wear the clothing um, and continues to take it off, um, they, they can earn pieces of the clothing back by being cooperative or acting in what they consider a more acceptable behavior. That's or, the, but did you get the sense from the report that they actually had taken the clothing away and then were giving back the clothing as an incentive to, uh, to get them to talk, say what they wanted to hear? Not from the report, no. It, they, they said that they, when they asked about why prisoners didn't have clothes, uh, they said in the report, says that they were told that some of the prisoners uh, could be a danger to themselves. And if they refused to wear the clothing, they felt in some cases it was essential to take it away from them so they couldn't tie it together and hang themselves. Um, they continued to take it off, and they were just being disruptive. So um, they just were taking clothing away from the, from the detainees. Um, now, wasn't that explanation the explanation that Colonel Pappas gave for the reason that they were being kept naked? Yes. And, and, uh, and when I questioned the, there was another paragraph in that same report about the women's underwear mm -hmm. on, on one of the prisoners' head, or the claim that the ICRC representative never saw that, but the prisoner claimed that he was made to wear women's underwear. Um, one of Colonel Pappas's officers, the operations officer, said, uh, well, I told the commander, don't give the prisoners those Victoria's Secret catalogs because they'd be making up stories like this. And they all laughed. And I said, you know, I don't think the ICRC would find that very funny, and I don't either. And, and they settled down. But um, we had a completely different set of uh, opinions on that particular uh, issue. When did you first learn about the torture and abuse that went on in Abu Ghraib in cell blocks 1A and 1B? On the uh, 12th of January, I was not in Baghdad. I was at another location very close to the Iranian border. And I came back from a meeting with the senior people in that organization, uh, and I opened my classified email traffic. And there was a message there from uh, the commander of the criminal investigation division. And I knew him. He was an MP. So I opened it up, and uh, it said, ma'am, I just wanted to let you know that I'm going in to brief the CG, commanding general, meaning General Sanchez, on the progress of the investigation at Abu Ghraib. This is about the allegations of abuse and the photographs. And that was the first time I ever heard about an investigation at all, allegations of abuse or photographs. And I didn't hear about it from my boss, General Sanchez. I heard it about it in an email as a kind of an afterthought and an ongoing investigation. Uh, which gave me great concern. 2004. Did, were, you, were you made aware later of meetings from which you were purposely excluded so that you wouldn't know what was going on in cell blocks 1A and 1B? The, uh, the legal advisor to General Sanchez in sworn statement said um, he was questioned about meetings that were held to discuss the progress of interrogations or better techniques to use in, for certain uh, detainees. And he said did, uh, that he was questioned if, I think it was General Fay actually, did General Karpinski attend any of these meetings? And he said, no, sir, she did not. She never attended any of the meetings. In fact, we scheduled them specifically 
when she would not be available to attend any of the meetings. What went through your mind when you saw that classified email about the investigation into abuse and the photographs? Well, I, I was shocked because it mentioned ongoing and I hadn't heard anything about an investigation, let, let alone one that was in progress. And allegations of abuse and photographs, I, I just couldn't imagine. But I, I really thought, okay, so... The soldiers have gotten into trouble out there by taking pictures or allowing pictures to be taken. And, and they know better than that. And this is what happens when you put a prison under the, under the control of a military intelligence officer who doesn't understand the rules like the MPs understand. So I, I said to my, uh, my... What kind of pictures did you think they were talking about? I, I, when we had... Uh, we, twice we had big press conferences at, at Abu Ghraib before we had prisoners in the heart site that was fully restored or about to be restored and reopened. So um, the, the MPs t went to great lengths to prevent the press people from taking any photographs because it's a violation of the Geneva Conventions to photograph prisoners. And, and so they knew the rules, and I watched them. Uh, I watched them enforce it repeatedly. So I thought, when I, I thought, okay, so somebody had a camera out there, somebody's gone home on R&R &R leave and had a picture of the detention camp or prisoners in their orange jumpsuits or their clothing behind the concertina wire, but just, um, I, I don't want to say harmless infractions because I don't mean that, but just photographs that would be taken um, by mistake. I had no, I, I could not comprehend uh, that it was anything like what I saw on the 23rd of January when I saw the photographs for the first time. What did those photographs that you saw for the first time on January 23rd depict? The first one I saw was the pile of naked uh, detainees stacked together, and, and all you could see was their, their, their butts, excuse me for saying this, but all you could see was their butts and their balls stacked on top of each other, and the smiling faces of two soldiers who belonged to the 800th MP Brigade behind them. Cigarettes dangling out of their mouths. That was the first one. And if they meant it for shock value, it achieved that. Because I, I could not believe what I was looking at. Uh, and the next picture was the long shot. Uh, and all of these photographs have been published with the exception of one. Um, so I'm not speaking of anything you haven't seen. Uh, one was a long angle shot of the cell block where there was a, a man uh, putting naked detainees in a, in a configuration. And when I said, you know, I asked about what about everybody else in the photograph, because they're certainly not all MPs. And the, uh, and the commander of the CID said to me, you're right, ma'am. Um, there are military intelligence soldiers. There's a medic in there and, and there's, uh, you know, civilians. And I said, what are the translators doing in the cell block because they were not allowed. And he said, oh, they're not translators, ma'am. Those are contract interrogators. Okay. CID means Criminal Investigation Division. Division. Right. Okay. Um, what led you to believe that there would be a cover-up of this scandal? Well, I, I heard in the email, I read in the email about this ongoing investigation I went down to Abu Ghraib the next morning, and nobody could talk about anything. They didn't know. The people that were there, the Grainers, the Englands, the Fredericks, they'd all been removed, not only from their duty positions, but from Abu Ghraib. And they were being held in another location. 
I asked generic questions. Do you, I heard some reference to photographs. Do you know anything about photographs? No. Knew nothing about photographs. Um, I, I did go through cell block 1A. I spoke to the sergeant there, and I said, what, what is going on? He said, ma'am, I don't know. I don't work here, but they told me to come over here because I worked here before. And, um, and I said, where are your logs? Let me see if I can kind of put this together. And he said, we don't have any logs. They took everything. So we started a new one. And I said, any, any files, memorandums? And he said, the only memorandum is this one that's posted out here. And it was posted on a column uh, in the cell block uh, right outside this little admin office that they were using. And the, what did that memorandum say? The memorandum said that there, it was an approval of harsher interrogation techniques. And who had signed that memorandum? That memorandum was signed by the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. And what kinds of techniques were authorized in that memorandum signed by Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary it, of Defense? It was one page, and he authorized sleep deprivation, uh, stress positions, uh, meal disruption, serving your meals late, not serving a meal, uh, leaving the lights on all night long, playing loud music, issuing insults or criticism of their religion, their, their uh, culture, and their beliefs. And was there a note in his handwriting on the side? Yes, in the margin on the left-hand side. And what did that say? It said, make sure this happens, with two exclamation points. And it was written alongside of the list of the interrogation techniques. Why were you the only one reprimanded or the highest officer, the highest ranking officer in the U.S. military who was reprimanded for the torture and abuse scandal at Abu Ghraib prison? I believe that the Pentagon uh, wanted to put this into a nice little package, seven so-called bad apples out of control on the night shift, and a female general officer who is obviously incompetent wanted to put that in a package, tie it up in a bow, and sink it forever um, to make people believe we've gotten it under control, we solved the problem, they're going to be court-martialed, they're going to be punished for this, let's move on to the next subject. In fact, when, on the 23rd, when I saw the photographs, then I was told by Colonel Marcello, the CID commander, that I needed to go over to see General Sanchez, so I did. And I was prepared, I said to him, I was sickened by the photographs as well. He didn't, he didn't want to have a conversation with me. And I, I said to him, sir, since I heard about this ongoing investigation, I've been planning in my head, I've been working on a, a release to the press. And I have a good relationship with the media here in the Middle East. I've served a lot of time in the Middle East. I want to go and, and say to them, look, this is what we know. And... Focus on the things we've done together correctly and what we've achieved so, achieved so far. As and we you, you speak Arabic, right? Yes. Okay. So I plan to do it. I, I was even talking to one of the translators down at Ambassador Bremer's headquarters saying, how exactly would I say this or how exactly, without giving him details about what I was planning to do. And um, because bad news doesn't get better over time. Tell the truth and tell it early. But he said, no, absolutely not. He meaning not. Sanchez. Yes. He looked me dead in the eye and said, no, absolutely not. You are not to discuss this with anyone, and that's an order. And if anybody approaches you about this, you direct the questions to Colonel Warren. How high up do you think the orders for that torture went? I think that it's very likely, or, or certainly possible, that, General, uh, that uh, Secretary Rumsfeld and the Vice President and Undersecretary Cambone, Sanchez, and all of them, knew about the harsher techniques. 
because General Miller and General Sanchez would not have implemented a new set of techniques without the approval of the Secretary of Defense. And the Secretary of Defense would not have authorized them without the approval of the Vice President. And so it, it filtered down. Um, and, and it never filtered down to me because I wasn't responsible for interrogations. But ultimately, they had the most convenient scapegoat and seven soldier scapegoats as a result of that process. So you were demoted, is that correct? That's correct. And what is your rank now? Well, I'm retired now. <laughs> um, and before you retired, what was your rank? Uh, I, I re was retired as a colonel. Okay. Um, do you think the 15-some investigations that have been conducted have really gotten to the truth of who's responsible for this torture and abuse? Absolutely not. They've Why not? All, well, they've all been directed and, and kept under the control of the Department of Defense. Secretary Rumsfeld was directing the course of each one of those separate investigations. It's great to be able to say we've done 17 investigations, but you might as well done one because you were running all of them. Um, there was no impartiality whatsoever. None. Has the Bush administration tried to keep you from speaking out? Yes. They, um, you know, they, they can talk about the failure of the chain of command, but I can tell you on less than one hand how many times anybody from my chain of command up has gotten me into an office and said, you're fired, you're incompetent, uh, or anything else. Nobody even picked up the phone and called me. I found out about my demotion from a reporter coming from the Pentagon briefing uh, who called me and asked me for an opinion or a, you know, a response to that. So I think that uh, they wanted me to be quiet. I know they wanted me to be quiet because when they heard that I was writing a book, uh, I got a form letter uh, in the mail advising me and encouraging me to send the transcript to the Pentagon to be reviewed. And, um, and my lawyer said, don't send them anything because they will tie it up for years. And I can appreciate Ambassador Murray's situation because I know how that works. Um, but I, I was able to avoid it because I was a private citizen, so they couldn't stop me. And, um, and there's been no response at all from the Pentagon. Do you think the torture and abuse have stopped? No, I, I don't have any reason. Unfortunately, I have no reason to believe that it has. Uh, I, I believe that cameras are no longer allowed anywhere near a cell block, but um, it, it, why, why should we believe that it's stopped? We still have uh, the captain from the 82nd Airborne Division that returned and had a diary, a log, of when he was instructed, what he was instructed, and who instructed him to go out and, and treat the prisoners harshly, to set them up for effective interrogations. And that was as recently as May of 2005. Thank you for your courage. No further questions. You're listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, that was General uh, Karpinski who was talking uh, before a Bush Commission hearing, uh, so-called Bush Commission hearing on war crimes in um, in Iraq uh, that took place uh, a few years ago. But uh, it's still relevant to today's discussion on the future of Iraq. 
of the U.S. presence in Iraq. Uh, next, we're going to be talking. I'll be hearing the testimony of uh, Da Jamal, who's an independent journalist who has been reporting from uh, Iraq about the impact of the war and of the uh, occupation of the U.S. and Western forces uh, on the people themselves of Iraq. Are you listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine? The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. We're going to be uh, hearing momentarily the testimony of Da Jamal. Stay tuned. Against humanity committed by the Bush administration during the occupation, the ongoing occupation of Iraq. Dar spent eight months working in occupied Iraq as an independent reporter. His dispatches have appeared in Interpress Service, the Asia Times, many other outlets. His, his, his reports have been published with The Nation, The Sunday Herald, Islam Online, The Guardian, and The Independent, to name a few. And I'm very glad Dar is with us here tonight. He continues to write and report on the situation in Iraq. He has an extensive network of contacts in Iraq, and I would say he is one of the, if not the foremost, reporter in the United States on the question of what the occupation actually means for the people of Iraq. Dar Jamal. War crimes and crimes against humanity in Iraq committed by U.S. forces acting on orders from their Commander-in-Chief George W. Bush. The broad charge against the Bush administration in Iraq is that their conduct, their deployment of military force, and their treatment of civilians and prisoners has been excessive and indiscriminate. This is in violation of the laws of war and the Geneva Conventions. To show this, I'll cite examples I have witnessed during my eight months reporting from occupied Iraq. I'll cover very briefly collective punishment, illegal weapons, the corporate looting of Iraq, impeding medical care, deliberately targeting civilians, and media complicity. There will be overlap as many of these topics have, have similar examples in Iraq. Collective punishment. I'll use Fallujah as the model city for Bush policy in Iraq. The U.S. caused actions to be taken in Fallujah in violation of the laws of war. For example, targeting by snipers of children and other civilians, targeting of ambulances, placement of snipers on the roofs of hospitals, and prevention of civilians from getting there for medical attention, and also illegal weapons used. Article 48 of the Geneva Conventions states that the basic rule regarding the protection of the civilian population provides, quote, in order to ensure respect for and protection of the civilian population and civilian objects, the parties to the conflict shall at all times distinguish between the civilian population and combat combatants and between civilian objects and military obje objectives and accordingly shall direct their operations only against military objectives. 
Article 51 on the protection of the civilian population provides the civilian population and individual civilians shall enjoy general protection against dangers arising from military operations. To give effect to this protection, the following rules, which are additional to other applicable rules of international law, shall be observed in all circumstances. It also notes the civilian population as such, as well as individual civilians, shall not be the object of attack. Acts or threats of violence, the primary pur purpose of which is to spread terror among the civilian population, are prohibited. It also notes indiscriminate attacks are prohibited. It should also be noted that the U.S. military, again following orders from their commander-in-chief, declared the entire city of Fallujah, a city with a population of over 350,000 civilians, a free fire zone, meaning once that operation began in November of 2004, anything in the city was to be targeted by the U.S. military. Article 51 also provides, among others, the following types of attacks are to be considered as indiscriminate. An attack by bombardment by any means or means which treats as a single military objective a number of clearly separated and distinct military objectives located in a city, town, village, or other area containing a similar concentration of civilians or civilian objects. It also notes that, and more importantly, an attack which may be expected to cause incidental loss of civilian life, injury to civilians, damage to civilian objects, or a combination thereof, which would be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage anticipated. It should also be noted that approximately 70% of the entire city of Fallujah was bombed to the ground during the U.S. assault on that city in November of 2004, which left dead a, a, estimates of between four and 6,000 civilians. Water, food, and medical aid were cut off from Fallujah both before and during the siege of that city. This form of collective punishment, which I've seen firsthand in Ramadi and Samara as well, has even led the UN to declare in October of last year that this was, quote, a flagrant, flagrant violation of international law. Either in part or in full, these policies have been utilized in the cities of Ramadi, Samara, Haditha, Fallujah, Al-Qaim, Balad, Abu Hishma, Sania, Najaf, Kut, Baghdad, Mosul, to name some. Illegal weapons, cluster bombs, uranium munitions, otherwise known as depleted uranium, white phosphorus, and fuel air bombs are also have been used and are being used in Iraq. All of these, according to Protocol 1, Section 1 of the Geneva Conventions, applies to the, quote, methods and means of warfare, in Article 35 states, quote, in any armed conflict, the right of the parties to the conflict to choose methods or means of warfare is not limited. It is prohibited to employ weapons, projectiles, and material and methods of warfare of a nature to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering. Lack of reconstruction, i.e., the corporate looting of Iraq. The 100, quote, Brimmer orders, unquote, initiated by U.S. proconsul Paul Brimmer under the CPA, changed many laws in Iraq, itself a violation of international law, but particularly they changed laws which affected the economy. 
The gross effect of this was the opening of Iraq's borders to foreign goods, foreign ownership of Iraqi banks, and making U.S. soldiers and contractors immune to Iraqi law. This also made any corporation, such as Bechtel and Halliburton, not only immune to all Iraqi law, but accountable to no one as far as their environmental and personnel policies. This is why we see Iraq's infrastructure in shambles today. So what does this look like on the ground for the Iraqi people? Water, even in the capital city of Baghdad, sometimes now residents are going days on end with no running water in their homes. Electricity, the average amount of electricity per 24 hours in a home in all of Iraq is three hours per 24 hours. Thus, people are oftentimes basically camping in their houses. Unemployment, unemployment is now up over 50%. It was even as low as 30% under the sanctions. There is, uh, needless to say, no security whatsoever in the country, including for U.S. soldiers there. The health care system, which used to be the best in the Middle East, is now completely in shambles. People going to hospitals now, uh, there's an 80% chance that they will leave with an infection that they did not have when they entered the hospital. Malnourishment now, also according to the U.N., is twice as high than it was under the genocidal sanctions. Meanwhile, since March of 2003, the value of Halliburton stock has increased 138%. Bechtel has been paid out in full for their initial contract, which was worth $680 million, and has been awarded contracts totaling $3.8 billion of U.S. taxpayer money. Impeding medical care. Note, one of the main purposes of the original Geneva Conventions was to protect medical facilities and personnel. The takeover of Fallujah General Hospital on the 7th of November is the prime example of, of this breach. According to the military, the hospital was targeted because it was a, quote, center of propaganda that spread rumors of civilian casualties during, last, during April, the April 04 siege. During the siege, patients were rounded up in order to lie on the floor with their hands tied behind their backs, as were doctors, another war crime. Two days later, the U.S. bombed Fallujah's Central Health Center, another war crime, killing 20 nurses and doctors and an uncounted number of patients. The U.S. military has refused to allow emergency aid to be brought into Fallujah, both during and after the siege, a war crime. The U.S. has also re refused to allow doctors to evacuate wounded people to hospitals outside the city, also a war crime. The U.S. has deliberately targeted ambulances and medical personnel in combat zones across Iraq, of course, also a war crime as well. Attacks on civilian hospitals are grave breaches under Article 147 of the Fort Geneva Convention of 1949. An attack on a military hospital is also a grave breach of the provisions of Geneva Convention 1. The Bush administration has openly defied the Geneva Conventions and continues to do so with no statements of remorse. Deliberately targeting civilians, the denial of food, water, and medical care to the civilian population as a method of warfare is, of course, a war crime. Military forces may not starve out civilians. Military forces may not deny food, water, medicine, or relief actions. The original purpose of the Geneva Conventions was on these points. 
Independent journalists who have tried to cover Fallujah have been detained and shot at by U.S. forces, which is, of course, also a war crime. A U.S. order issued in March 2004 gave the U.S.-installed Iraqi government sweeping powers to control the media. U.S.-installed Prime Minister Alawi, in November of 2004, issued a letter telling the news media to, quote, stick to the government line on the U.S.-led offensive in Fallujah or face legal action. The first thing U.S. forces did was cut off the water supply, a war crime. For over a month since then, women and their families were trapped in their houses by curfews and U.S. snipers without food, water, medical care, or electricity. U.S. forces have left Fallujah's families to face this scourge without providing electricity, sewage, or other necessary services, also a war crime. And finally, media complicity. Also remember the aspect of the Nuremberg tribunals in which those who argued to violate the law or who prepared arguments on how to argue against humanitarian law norms were also tried and convicted. Aiding and abetting war crimes and crimes against humanity is also a war crime. The media, the Nuremberg Charter for Journalism and the UNESCO Charter for Journalism the primary foundation of these is that it is the media's job during wartime not to incite the public to violence. Outlets like CNN, Fox, and stenographers and pundits such as Thomas Friedman and Judith Miller of the New York Times and talking heads such as Bill O'Reilly and Rush Limbaugh are certainly guilty of inciting the public to violence and aiding and abetting in war crimes and should be tried as such. And the thought that I want to close with is the invasion as an act of aggression, the mother of all war crimes, which has already been covered quite well this evening. Um, there was even a news story on this when uh, the U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan said that the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq was an illegal act that contravened the United Nations Charter. Thank you. Mr. Jamal, excuse me. Mr. Jamal, uh, forgive me if you've already answered this question in your presentation, but could you fully describe and evaluate the official Bush justification for the attack on Fallujah? The November siege of Fallujah was officially conducted with the goal of uh, quelling the resistance in Iraq and to provide security and stability for the, at the time, upcoming January 3005 elections. Those were the two parameters sit, set, used to justify the invasion. The green light was given by the U.S.-backed interim prime minister at the time, Iyad Lawi, and that uh, invasion took place, which I discussed uh, in, in detail what happened. I think it should be noted, uh, if those were the two goals for the invasion of Fallujah, which is still going on at this time, I should add, almost every single week, to, to date, U.S. soldiers are dying and being wounded in Fallujah, as are Iraqi civilians. So did it provide security and stability for the January 30 elections, a day when 40 Iraqis were killed, over 200 were wounded countrywide? I think not. And did it quell the resistance? There's more attacks now on U.S. forces in Iraq 
than uh, prior to that uh, siege of Fallujah. In fact, there's an average of nearly 100 attacks every single day uh, right now on U.S. forces. So based on their own uh, quote-unquote justifications for that siege, uh, it was a dismal failure. Uh, Mr. Jamal, uh, did any of the jury other? Yeah, go yeah. ahead, Ann. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that we had uh, two no-fly zones over Iraq for a period of, I believe it was eight or ten years, where the U.S. military and the British military flew uh, military missions, taking out military installations or anything that was threatening. Um, um, I don't know what they were threatening. Maybe those aircraft they were flying. But anyway, with the two or ten years of no-fly, two no-fly zones, how would you characterize the shock and awe that the Bush administration had on Baghdad in the early days of the war. Was that necessary as a part of military operations? Uh, absolutely it was not. It, it, you, I should bring up a point also. Another type, it, it, it can be argued that another type of weapon used against Iraq is um, biological war warfare by means of the deliberate targeting of water infrastructure and electrical grids and medical uh, medical infrastructure during the, those no-fly zone attacks, as well as the invasion itself. Of course, now we have very high rates of cholera, typhoid, uh, kidney failures, uh, and other waterborne diseases. So that can be argued. But um, as far as the shock and awe campaign, really, uh, as Mr. Ritter so well put, there really wasn't much left of the Iraqi military. Uh, it was it was quite known in advance there wasn't going to be much of much of a fight put up. Um, there was already infiltration into the Iraqi military. So shock and awe, aside from uh, as a propaganda tactic, tactic and as a statement uh, to the rest of the Middle East, perhaps, really served no purpose other than that. Is white phosphorus being used? Uh, white phosphorus is, uh, was used quite extensively in Fallujah, even admitted to by the Pentagon, and it is still being used. Yes, I had, I had a question, Mr. Jamal. I, my sense is that the true horror and suffering of the occupation is something that most people in this country simply do not really understand at all that the coverage of these things has been suppressed, which I feel makes your uh, uh, journalism so crucial. Could you share with us an instance or two of things that you saw when you were in Iraq during the occupation that, that, you, that, that you feel people in this country should know to get a real sense of what the character of this occupation is? I think making people aware of what's happening in Iraq, um, these parallels we keep hearing of Iraq and Vietnam, uh, I personally don't think are out of place from what I've seen. For example, being in Fallujah in April of 04 during the first siege, I was at a small clinic and I saw uh, the effects of uh, these tactics being used that I laid out for you as far as the deliberate targeting of ambulances, the deliberate targeting of civilians. I watched uh, young children and women being carried into this clinic, uh, brought uh, in sort of a, uh, in a, an emergency state by their own cars because the ambulances couldn't function and these people being literally carried into the clinic by their loved ones and treated and sometimes dying. And this, this is what's happening in Iraq. This is going on. Uh, right now there's large operations going on in Ramadi that, of course, these aren't being reported in the mainstream media. Uh, and, and this sort of thing is happening on a daily basis in Iraq. Uh, it is a war, and it is much like Vietnam in that way. Thank you. Thank you.
our next um, prosecuting uh, attorney who's going to be um, inquiring of uh, Janice Karpinski is um, a quite well-known law professor, Marjorie Cohn, who teaches at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego. So that was an uh, uh, excerpt from uh, the uh, interview with the, um, or the testimony given by uh, by a journalist, a freelance journalist who has been reporting from uh, from uh, Iraq, Da Jamai, and he was talking before the uh, inquiry or the Bush Commission, uh, so-called Bush Commission, uh, into war crimes committed by the Bush administration in Iraq, uh, the People's Commission. And earlier we heard from uh, testimony given by uh, Janice Karpinski, the former commander of the Abu Ghraib prison. Uh, for archived editions of Subversity, you can go to kuci.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G, uh, for back, uh, back editions of, earlier editions of this show. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. <laughs>